All right, I'm going to ask our speakers to join me up here, and we're going to get into some questions. You have uh, submitted a record number of questions this year, uh, and they are better than usual. So we're going to try to get through as many as possible. But since this has been sort of a heavy weekend, I thought we'd begin on some somewhat of a lighter note. So each of these guys has a strong connection to someone rather famous in our circles of evangelicalism. So Owen used to be an assistant for uh, Dr. Al Mohler at Southern Seminary, and uh, Andrew still works with uh, Dr. Russell Moore with ERLC, and Justin for a long time was the research assistant for, uh, for John Piper. So I'm gonna ask each of these guys for an endearing story about their famous mentor. <laughs> endearing slash surprising slash funny. You decide if it's embarrassing for them. So much power. Uh, um, by the way, Ryan has camo shoes on. I think he, should get, he gets a hand for that. <laughs> I wore camo shoes so you wouldn't see them, but that, it didn't work. Th those are cool, I want those. Um, I worked for Al Mohler as his editorial assistant, so working with him on book projects about a decade ago, uh, sat in on his radio show, uh, some of you remember that, basically daily during this uh, two and a half, three year period. And so I saw him up close and personal, it was a fantastic experience for me, very formative. And uh, I guess I could pull lots of things that still stand out from that time, but I guess the one that sticks out to me is traveling with him uh, to Florida at one point, and many of you know that he's legendary for his nocturnal habits, that he can, uh, he can stay up all hours of the night and he reads a book a night or something like this. You've heard these things, maybe, Dr. Moeller? And uh, I think it's basically true. He was, he was in the car, we're driving, he's not resting or relaxing one bit. He is, he is powering through magazines and highlighting books and all sorts of things and all of a sudden, and we're kind of talking, solving the world's problems, I'm posing all these questions to him, and um, all of a sudden I look over and he's fallen asleep. <laughs> mid highlighter mid-air, you know, like the... <laughs> so I, I refrained from asking him a question to wake him up. Well, then his phone rings, I don't know, 15 minutes later, and it, he snaps out of it, answers the phone, and says, oh, hi, John. And it's he and John MacArthur just chatting and figuring out, you know, evangelical problems, <laughs> solving some massive boondoggle in the evangelical sphere. Um, and it just, it was just a little window into how the sausage gets made, you know, this guy uh, <laughs> keeping these strange habits but contributing so much important work to the kingdom of God. Great. All right, Andrew. Um, so around the office, I'm kind of like my other... Uh, Two colleagues who work closely with Dr. Moore, they tend to be a little bit more reserved than I am, more a little more buttoned up. And so I'm around the office, I'm kind of known as like the, the resident flamethrower who's throwing bombs or whatever, just being funny. And, and, and so he, uh, he, he jokes that he's like fired me 15 different times. And so like literally, if you go back and check his Twitter account, you can see his replies to me like, Andrew, you're fired. Just based on something I've said. Uh, and uh, so, something similar to that, uh, I'm you know, been to seminary, having him to working on a PhD, and I still make some theological gaffes at time. And I remember uh, I was telling him a story, and I, I remarked with, I'll tell you what, if Jesus were alive today, <laughs> and, 
And he like, he is alive, you know, <laughs> type response. That's happened on several occasions. So those are just kind of slips of, uh, of the That one's there. pretty bad. You yeah, one on it's yourself really bad. There. It's really, really bad. Yeah. Uh, but in a, a more endearing thing, uh, you know, Dr. Moore is someone who uh, has been tremendously blessed to be in a position of real influence with mm-hmm. national leaders. Uh, he's met with President Obama in the Oval Office, and uh, all the presidential candidates have come to him seeking consultation and advice on the issues facing evangelicals. And it's been so refreshing to see an evangelical leader who, uh, he, he can't be bought. Hmm. Um, the access and proximity to power has not changed him. And he's someone, you know, he, his whole center of his theology is the kingdom of God. And so his whole thing is to seek first the kingdom, kingdom first. And uh, that really is a mantra that he lives out. And you see that uh, in how he's interacting with politicians and uh, major, major power brokers in the society. And it's just nice to see someone who um, is, a, is a Christian first and foremost yeah, in public great. life, especially. That's great. Justin? I'll give you one endearing anecdote and one funny anecdote. One of the first times I met Piper, that was in uh, summer of 1998. My wife and I had just gotten married. We moved up there uh, for me to do an internship, and we uh, gathered as a little group. There were five of us interns sitting around with him, and he said, you know, can ask any questions we want. My first question to him was, do you struggle with pride? And if you know anything about John Piper, the way his mind works, it just goes towards definitions and distinctions. And he said, well, there are two kinds of pride. There's the kind of pride that wants to take credit for something that only God should get the glory for. And there's the kind of pride that enjoys the applause of men. And my theology means that I don't struggle at all with the first kind of pride but I struggle every day with the second kind of pride. And just getting to, to work with him and travel with him, and I actually wrote my dissertation at Southern on him, so I've, through the years I've gotten to see him up close and personal and just to watch genuine humility for somebody who is prophetic and forceful and strong. Uh, he surrounded himself in those two years with five uh, snot-nosed interns who challenged his exegesis and pushed back and if you could ground your objection in the word of God he would reconsider even some of the points he made in his sermons it was just a wonderful education to watch him uh, in practice so the funny story which just came to mind as I was sitting up here is that uh, when my wife and I moved to Bethlehem in 1998 he was he had already started Romans chapter 1 when we left at the end of 2005, I think he was only in chapter 12 or 13. So we didn't get through a whole sermon series in seven years with him. Um, but one sermon in particular stood out. He wears glasses, and if you've ever seen him preach, he gestures a lot. In fact, there's even a, a, a Tumblr site called Piper Gifts that just has all sorts of things of him gesturing in all sorts of wild ways. But, if I can stand up, he, uh, he was preaching and, and he was moving to make some big gesture and he said something like, and the glory! And as he did that, he caught the bottom of his eyeglasses and they, they went flying behind him and he, 
he picked them up and, and he had the presence of mind to say, you seem like men walking, like trees walking. <laughs> that is great. All right, so we're going to start on race because that is the most uh, recent topic we were just on and um, that's big. Uh, do you guys, let's start with this. Do you two have any questions for Justin about his talk on race? You know, I was, I was really there. struck by your reference of um, the subconscious uh, prejudices that we can bring up and work out in our mind. What, do you have any advice on how we might help ourselves evaluate and find those blind spots? I have said this before on different topics, but I think there is a lot of wisdom to it. I think half of the battle, maybe two-thirds of the battle, is asking the question. Hmm. I think the greatest blind spot of all is not even to have the question on your radar screen hmm. so that you go through your whole life and never ask yourself, are there some ways in which I might be sinfully prejudicial, making assumptions that are unwarranted? Um, so I think asking the question I think also just living in community with brothers and sisters where you can talk openly, where you can build relationships of trust, where people have the freedom to come to you and say, you know, you said this, or you said that, or do you notice that whenever you refer to that people group, you always use that same adjective, which is not meant as a put down, but is meant as a compliment. But do you know in that community that that is received as, as its own form of stereotype or paternalism. I think just trying to live in community, if, you, if you're married, to have a spouse who is not intimidated to say, I think you're, you're not seeing some things here. Mm. Or to have relationships with people who are different from us, not just mm. racially, but socioeconomically and uh, other parts of the country. So I, I don't have the exact answers there, but I think if we can at least be asking ourselves the question and living in such a way that people aren't intimidated that, well, if I even raise this as a question, he or she is going to uh, really be offended or, or uh, shut down that conversation. So maybe some places to start at least. Owen, any thoughts, questions? Uh, Justin just said we need to ask questions and I can't immediately form a question. <laughs> That's problematic. But I will say this. Um, I, I found the talk really helpful in terms of calling us to uh, interrogate our natural thinking on the issue. As you said very well, uh, we don't walk around boasting about our blind spots. And I think that's something for us to chew on because it seems, I'm not exactly sure why, honestly, but it seems like there are a few issues more than race that cause us to, to close down and kind of embrace our own views and not necessarily listen to those of others. So I... I found your call to, uh, to interrogate your blind spots and listen, listen well and listen first, um, uh, striking and needful. I, I will say too, in, in listening to you, um, it struck me, and we've talked a little bit about this uh, as speakers this week with Ryan as well, that, um, and I'm speaking for myself here, but sometimes um, we get into a, a view of race here where we see people in very static monolithic terms 
um, where you know there would be a white person and a black person and all white people would be the same and all black people would be the same or all Hispanic people would be the same or all Asian American people would be the same. In truth, I think we need to recognize the complexity of the American experience, uh, just speaking about this country, to say nothing of international uh, uh, situations. And, um, and I mean, I think about myself. I, I have, uh, I'm from a mixed race family. Uh, I have a Colombian American sister who was adopted at a young age. You wouldn't necessarily look at me and know that. Uh, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't necessarily know that I enjoy rap music, but I do. Um, now, that doesn't, um, that's not to say and something. Practice it. What's that? And practice it. And, and I actually am a practicing rapper. Thank you, Justice. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> But in all seriousness, um, that's a pretty important thing to know about me. But if, in terms of my family makeup, it shaped me. Many of you have some sort of similar kind of shading or complexity in your own life experience, and we need to recognize these things before we approach people in static categories just in the way that you uh, framed the, the kind of uh, fictional people, I think, help to account for how individual people are not static categories. I think we very much need that as well. Yeah. And even in that, you know, I'm, I'm conscious of somebody listening to that who's African-American who thinks, well, you painted this picture as if all black folks in the South are only going to vote for Democrats, and I'm black, and I live in the South, and I didn't vote for Obama, and I never would vote for Obama. I mean, so you just, that's one of the difficult things about this is we can be paralyzed by thinking, I'm going to say something wrong, I'm going to offend, I'm going to be misunderstood. It's just better not to say anything at all. So take some risks and clean up the mess. Afterwards. And it leads to your, one of your last points about developing friendships mm -hmm. uh, with those who are different than us. Yeah, it's really good, really helpful. All right, big list of questions here, as you can see. So we'll, uh, we'll, we'll talk some image in politics things here. Um, how can we foster love as Christians and in the church for homosexuals? Um, Owen, you said that we ought to love homosexuals better than homosexuals love homosexuals. So how do we foster that? I think that um, we actually put our theology into practice. So we have to recognize, let's think in terms of a neighborhood. <clears throat> for example, we might be tempted to pull back if we see people who live uh, lifestyles that are obviously different than our own, but if we're going to make good on the super-powered theological resources of the doctrine of the image of God, if we're going to make good on this, we have to recognize that we need to do practical things like be neighborly, uh, form friendships, listen to somebody, ask questions like Justin was just talking about, get to know somebody's story. Uh, sometimes we feel pressure as evangelicals, don't we, to, to do this kind of thing where within five minutes, if we don't have the gospel fully shared with somebody we just met, we have failed the kingdom of Christ. We want to share the gospel early and often as much as we can, but we can also know that we can build genuine friendships with people. And part of that is listening, asking good questions, hearing their story. Why are they where they are? I think if we do those kind of things, instead of treating neighbors, for example, like a project, mm -hmm. I think that's at least a start yeah. to loving gays and le lesbians well. Starting with friendships. Starting with friendships. That's listening. Good. Can I just recommend one book real quickly or an Thank author, you. Rosaria Butterfield? Many of you probably have heard that name, but she was a, an English professor who was tenured 
who helped to write gay and lesbian policy for her university, was in an active lesbian relationship, and uh, was befriended by folks in the church, became a, became, uh, a Christian, and is now married to a pastor. Her writing and her videos online is just such an encouraging embodiment of what we want hospitality to look like and her counsel for all of us coming. She has a, a certain authority and insight coming out of that lifestyle that is just difficult for us to have. So she would be somebody I'd recommend listening to. One thing too is um, don't play to the caricature that evangelicals and gay individuals are at odds with each other by virtue of their existence. Mm. Um, we almost need to demythologize this idea that it's like the gays versus the Christians and see, a, I mean, to come back to Owen's Imago Dei theme, to see a, a common humanity. Um, we, don't, we don't parse up other groups in society like how, how can Christians love liars better? Um, so we almost need to, we need to recognize the common, common humanity of us all and uh, begin there and to see each other as uh, sinners equally alike uh, and then and build from that foundation up. That's really good. That's the most great. important thing about us is not our heterosexuality or something else. Right. Yeah. It's our humanity. Yeah. 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 The image of God. That's great. That's, that's good. All right, Andrew, there are a number of questions that were worded very similarly about religious freedom. Uh, so let me just list through these questions and then let you just riff on however you want to answer them. Okay. okay? If government should equally defend all religions, how can you expect it to defend a biblical definition of marriage and gender? Tuck that away. Religious freedom for Muslims? How do we balance defending religious freedom for Muslims when their theology does not embrace freedom of belief for others? Two others, hold on. Can't religious, I know this seems ridiculous, seems like I'm being mean to them, but no. Uh, these are all really similar. I think they really do have the same answer. Can't religious, I'm gonna drink my water now. Okay, yeah. Can't religious liberty be used to justify anything? Um, what does it rule out? Who decides where we draw the line on the practice of religious liberty? Um, polygamy, uh, homosexual marriage, of course, euthanasia, abortion, etc. All right, so who decides what to protect was one of the questions essentially. Yeah. Uh, so uh, citizens engaged in a democracy get to decide by virtue of who they install in executive offices in terms of who they put in the Senate and who they put in the House of Representatives. Uh, that applies on a state and local level. Uh, and ultimately, even though um, citizens don't really have direct electoral power in, well, typically, at least at the federal level, in judges, uh, at least judges get to have some say in balancing uh, the, the, the balancing test of a claim of religious liberty infringement with the counterclaim that the government needs to step in and infringe upon someone's religion. So uh, we have a, a system in place of laws that get to broker this out. That men interpret, men, fallible men interpret the laws. Now to the claim that uh, 
can religion do anything it wants under the claim of religious liberty? Last night I said that religious liberty is not an absolute right. Um, You can't engage in child sacrifice as the Aztecs would have done many, many centuries or civilizations ago if they were here today. And why is that? Well, we have laws against murder in society. And that's one of the highest, greatest laws in our society. And if there were a religion that were wanting to engage in the type of practice, or I think even animal sacrifice, which is very common with religious practice, um, there is a compelling interest on the part of the state to step in and say, hey, we know religion really, really matters, but we can't let that happen. Um, So then the question then becomes, if they're going to infringe upon someone's religious liberty, how are they going to do it? So then there's this other part of the test called the least restrictive means test, which I mentioned, which says that a state, if they're gonna infringe upon someone's religious liberty, they have to do it the, the least invasively way possible. Um, I, I hope that answers yeah, that's good. some of the questions. I, I, this, is, this comes back to the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Yeah. That is federal legislation that was passed in 1993, completely non-controversial, 97 to zero in the Senate, uh, a voice vote, unanimous voice vote in the House, signed by President Bill Clinton. This was a bipartisan, non-political issue in the mid-90s. Uh, and the RIFRA Act basically says uh, a compelling government interest. What is it? The government has to demonstrate it, and then they have to use the least restrictive means possible. Now, what's problematic today is that we're now using, or liberal pundits and activist groups are using uh, this myth that RIFRAs are a license to discriminate. That if you appeal to a RIFRA, you can discriminate against someone uh, and do it under the rubric of religion which is not what anyone who is in favor of RIFRAs is actually saying. Yeah. How about Muslims in Europe? So religious freedom there hasn't gone so well in some ways. It's, yeah. it's not gone the way they maybe intended for it to. Um, yeah, some, sometimes that. Why is to, that me, different than? to me a part of that where, where there has been militarized aspects of Islam um, pop up in Western Europe and where there have been police forces that have not been wanting to go into certain areas, uh, that's a problem of the police forces. That's a courage issue um, of them not willing to step in and say, all right, religious liberty, free exercise, yes, 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 um, but you can't, you can't incite violence. You can't, um, you can't denigrate women in our society under the rubric of religion. And I think we, we mentioned this yesterday too, is uh, a lot of Europe's problems it's not the fault of Muslims necessarily. It's a fault of multiculturalism that has been um, a, a failure to assimilate Muslims into broader culture, mm-hmm. to make them feel a part of Western Europe, so therefore when they're not a part of Western Europe, they um, isolate themselves in kind of uh, religious and cultural ghettos. Yeah. In different multiplication rates, right? Yeah, and, and then lastly the demographic issue is uh, you can expect continued conflict in Western Europe because the replacement rate in terms of demographics of Western Europeans actually birthing new generations of Western Europeans isn't happening. And where are populations growing? Uh, in religiously conservative communities, both evangelical and Islamic for that matter. Um, religi- sociologically, um, religious communities um, re- reproduce more than secular or non-religious communities. Okay, good. 
Either of you have something to add to that question of, that whole big question of where do we draw the line of the practice of religious liberty? No, moving on. In America, you have to submit yourself to the laws and customs of this country, you say the Pledge of Allegiance, for example, so you don't create little uh, militarized zones, as Andrew said, as Europe did with multiculturalism. So it's really crucial that people who are in America uh, continue to maintain faithfulness to their religious tradition, but become an American citizen in a way that Europe, many European countries have not uh, asked of their citizens in the last several decades. So now you're seeing complete polarization and it's very, it's explosive, for example, in France uh, with anti-Semitism horribly on the rise, Islamic terrorism um, taking root. So it, it reminds us in America to, to prize a national sense of identity, not as our ultimate identity, but it's important. Okay. I'm going to pitch this one to Justin. Uh, Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, passages like that say that we need to submit to the government to even honor human governments. Um, Acts 5 is a slightly different model in a sense that the apostles say it's better for us to obey God than to obey man. Um, when do we know to, when should we disobey the government? Yeah, I'd, I'd rather hear Andrew answer that one. <laughs> I have answers if you want to hear them. <laughs> uh, so there's, a, there's disagreement in the Christian ethical tradition on this. There's not one tradition that can speak univocally for the whole history of the church. Um, my personal position is when all last resorts have been exhausted and there is no way to seek redress of grievances, then the question can then be on the table. Uh, and then it's not even a question of violent resistance. It's a question of, uh, it could be anything other than violence. Um, and then secondly, if you are being assigned or requested or coerced by your government to be materially involved as a primary agent in something that you believe is wrong, that would be a time where you could say, I cannot do that. Now that doesn't mean therefore you have to resist, it means you might need to resign your position. But luckily in a nation like ours, we've had good conscience protections on the laws. So you'll have pharmacists who don't want to distribute morning after pills. And so there are laws that protect that. If you're a nurse and you don't want to, um, if you don't want to uh, partake or help um, service an abortion. You don't have to do that type of thing. If the government were to say, nope, all those conscience protections are gone, uh, then, then disobedience becomes a live option potentially. And I think just to make explicit what was implicit or what Andrew just said, it, there is that distinction between vehemently disagreeing with our government, thinking that it is uh, acting immorally, has made the wrong decision, versus the government forcing me to violate my conscience or to participate in evil. So I can very strongly disagree with the SCOTUS decision regarding same-sex marriage, and yet operate as a good, faithful citizen underneath that rubric to the point at which the government is not yet forcing me to perform same-sex marriages. If we get to the point where, and I don't 
know that we will, but if they were to force a pastor or force you know, citizens to participate in some way, that becomes a very personal thing in which I'm not just standing as a citizen with a clean conscience, strongly disagreeing with my government, but being asked or coerced to participate mm-hmm. in it. I think, I think that's the point at which we say, I must obey God rather than man. But for the most part now, we are still blessedly able to live freely in such a way that we are not ourselves being coerced into evil, even as we lament the evil that's being done around us. And one final thing, too, is whenever we invoke this question of civil disobedience, we, we always think of ourselves as the exception, that it's our situation that justifies disobedience. Um, I would really, really, really encourage anyone who's thinking through those um, grid, thinking through, that, thinking through that grid, to really, really, really evaluate this last resort criteria. Have you exhausted every last possible means to resolve the situation? So you think of like the Roe v. Wade ruling. A lot of people um, want to, you know, the question of can you commit violence against abortion providers? And I would say no, that's vigilante justice. But secondly, there there is a way to end Roe v. Wade in America. There is. I mean, there's a a constitutional amendment route, uh, which would be direct democracy. And then there would be a way of installing the right Supreme Court justices. So even though we hate abortion, even though we think Roe v. Wade is disastrously and murderously evil, right now in America, we haven't exhausted all of our resources. Those options are still on the table. And that's why we don't take up arms over abortion? Yeah. Because there's still <laughs> I, I, options they, on the table? Especially in us Christians, um, we weren't given the keys of the state to execute um, retaliation or retributive justice. That's a, that's a state power, um, and it's not been given to the church, and that's, uh, we're not a policing power. That's vigilante justice. Yeah. yeah. And, and so in some ways, it's as simple as if the state is causing me to sin against my conscience, then I must obey God rather than man, right? Mm-hmm. As yeah. pastors, we would say, um, if you believe the Bible teaches corporal punishment mm-hmm. of children, and the state says no, then... You, you, you obey God, not, not man. Well, right? we saw with the Houston Five, the Houston pastors last mm-hmm. year. Um, I think that was a, a right example of Houston pastors saying, we will not give you our, our sermons, even though they've been subpoenaed. Because that was pastors saying, you don't have a right to this. And at the ERLC and Dr. Moore, who's, Dr. Moore is very conservative on the, using this type of civil disobedience language, and he was insistent on his blog and on Twitter saying, pastors, do not give the government these, these sermons. That is not the government's job. Yeah, okay. Uh, let's see here. How should preachers talk about uh, politics from the pulpit? How specific should they get? Of course, we all agree that as it comes up in a passage, we should talk about it. In your Proverbs, you, you talk about government and reign and things like that. Um, when you're in Titus 3.1 and there's government there. Um, but how specific should pastors get? Yeah, a lot of times people ask this question and they wonder, they, they almost start from the standpoint uh, of whether pastors should directly support a candidate or something. I would prefer to, to go a little bit before that principially and say, that a pastor is a theologian, and a pastor, by virtue of his 
call in Christ to shepherd the flock is an ethicist. And so, uh, even before we get to the tough issues of whether a pastor comments on this ballot initiative or that one, a pastor is the ethical activator of his congregation. There is nobody the congregation, in my view, should more look to for ethical theological formation than the pastor. We're not asking seminary professors or academicians or organizational heads fundamentally to be the ones who shape our views fundamentally. We should expect that our pastors would at the very least be building a Christian worldview that would equip us to begin to handle ethical and thus political issues. So that's where I want to go first. I want to say, pastors, before you go to the granular, to the particular, ground yourself in the universals, build out a Christian worldview, comment on the issues that we have been talking about this very weekend. Don't just give them a 30-second, you know, glance over. Build a worldview in your people. So many evangelicals, as we are seeing with this uh, strange election, do not have a functioning Christian worldview. Um, there doesn't really seem to be one present, at least for those who would profess to be evangelical. And so I think this is a, a crying need in the church for pastors to build this worldview. And then when issues are really pressing, when you're at something like abortion, uh, if, if it's on the ballot in a local community, I, for one, cannot see how I would, if I was a pastor, pass up commenting on an opportunity to strike down a horrendous baby-killing law, something like this. I would need to speak to it. Um, uh, I wouldn't necessarily endorse a candidate or something like this, but there are moments that God gives us where I think pastors are actually called to press in. I think of, you know, what happened with Wilberforce and abolition and the British Empire. I mean, Newton, John Newton helped champion. We talk a lot about Wilberforce, William Wilberforce, the parliamentarian, but John Newton and John Venn and other pastors spoke out from their pulpit about the horrors of slavery specifically, and they were right to do so. I believe history vindicates them. You should do so discriminatingly and carefully, but there are certain moments that God gives you, and the moment is, is hot, and you need to strike. Justin, you're an elder in your church and have been for a good while. Um, any thoughts on how far a pastor should go in talking about politics in his church? Yeah, I, th I think as much as possible, if we can keep it at the principial level, uh, because... I think the pulpit is such a sacred place and the, there is authority vested in the office of a gospel minister and he's standing there preaching from the word of God. That's, that's, to be, that's what he's supposed to do. He's supposed to unfold what the Lord has said, what the Lord thinks. And so to get down, to use Owen's language, at the granular level of a particular candidate when the Lord might leave open more than one option, to say that with authority from the pulpit, I think is probably a misuse of the pulpit. But I think we can preach very strongly the principles of the Christian worldview and encourage our people to act wisely and carefully and to enter into dialogue. But I'm very uncomfortable with the idea of endorsing a particular candidate because it even with qualifications, it tends to bind the consciences, I think, of hearers in, in an inappropriate way. And frankly, what Owen is calling for is the right thing, but what we've seen, I think, in this election cycle is that there are many Christians in positions of authority who are not very well versed in political theory 
who are speaking beyond their knowledge, both morally and intellectually. Okay. Well, let's stay with you while we're on this topic here and there on abortion. Um, in your talk on abortion, you said that life begins at conception. Um, so a pill like the RU486 pill, that kind of thing that happens after, steps in after conception, is, is that also a kind of abortion, that murder? Yeah, I, I think if, if uh, there is a, a contraceptive that's actually an abortifacient that, that ends the life, even if it does so immediately, I think what's going to happen and probably already is happening is that uh, people will look at the statistics over the next few years and notice that abortions are going down. You know, the, the number of, of women who are going to clinics mm -hmm. who are pregnant and you can see that they're pregnant or they're, they're several weeks or several months into their pregnancy with the rise of abortifacients that can take care of the problem immediately. And that sort of statistic then doesn't show up on Planned Parenthood's uh, mm -hmm. calculations. Good so I, I do think it's, it's problematic and I think we need to be thinking more about those issues. Mm -hmm. In some ways it's, it's clear to think about somebody specifically going from their car into the clinic, but um, abortion thrives on secrecy um, and so if you're able to um, take a pill and, again, take care of, of the problem, again, I think we're going to just see that increase all the more over the years. Okay. Yeah. Owen, uh, a portion of this country talks in terms of a woman's right to choose. Another portion of this country talks in terms of abortion, taking of a life. Mm. Um, speak to that issue of a woman's right to choose and why perhaps that should not be the, the way in which we speak of these things. Yeah, we don't, we don't suggest that a murderer, somebody, uh, who, an adult who killed a fellow adult, exercised his right to choose to commit murder yeah. of an adult. And so um, because the fetus is a human person and is not simply a clump of cells, um, because the fetus doesn't presto changeo become a human person once it's outside of the womb, mm -hmm. we cannot thus frame this issue in terms of choice as if the choice is a virtuous one or a, an understandable one, the choice to commit abortion, that is. Yeah. We can't accept that language. We have, to, we have to locate personhood as the foundation of this issue and, and recognize if we wouldn't say, I have the right to to choose to commit horrible acts of racism, we can't do it with, a, with an, an infant in the womb either. Okay. And two quick strategies here, and this is, I'm pulling this again from Scott Klusendorf and, and Greg Kokel and the way in which they think about dialoguing with people. Number one, to say I'm very pro-choice when it comes to women. I think women should have thousands of choices. <laughs> choice of what kind of job they should have, choice of what kind of car they should drive, what kind of um, clothes they should wear we believe that women should have the right to choose. Mm. Now, when we're in this abortion discussion, to get the person to articulate, uh, what you say you're pro-choice, um, you believe a woman has a right to choose what? An abortion. And how, how are you defining abortion? To get them to say, in essence, what they mean, I believe a woman has a right to kill her unborn child. 
When you get that out on the table, it changes the dynamic and moves it beyond just labels. Because if we come across as people who don't like women being able to choose things, we've lost the debate. They've lost the debate if they can articulate, we strongly believe women should have the right to murder unborn children. It's just different. Just one one quick thing, echoing what um, Owen just said. I've said up here that religious liberty isn't an absolute right. Um, Choice isn't an absolute right. Um, And so I think it just requires us to kind of peel back the assumptions of how culture uses this language. Well, I love what Owen said. I was thinking the same thing. Um, You don't get a choice uh, to engage in criminal activity just under the rubric of choice because Americans have uh, a regime of rights-based language that gives us choice. No, choice is not absolute. Can I add one more thing? Yeah, please go. Another strategy uh, to ask somebody that you're in dialogue with, do you believe that I have the right to choose to kill my seven-month-old son? No, No one would say that. Uh, not even Peter Singer. So then you can ask, what is the difference between a newborn and somebody who is not born? And then as they try to articulate, you know, size, level of development, environment, Geography, degree of dependency, yeah. the SLED acronym, then you can, I mean, you're, you're reframing debates so that you're not on the defense because that's one of the, the powerful things about pro-abortion abortion choice. They framed it so that we're on, on the defense. But if you can ask questions to get them to defend something indefensible, then I think we can make some progress. And we're talking right now in terms of discussing abortion with someone who disagrees with us. What about an unbelieving girl who's pregnant and is considering abortion? Andrew, how would you counsel her? What would you say? Anything different than what we're saying right now? Um, I mean, first and foremost, if, if she's an unbelieving person, uh, I would plead with her that there is a better option than abortion, first and foremost. Secondly, uh, I would try to see what, what do we need to put in place in that young woman's life to prevent an abortion from occurring. Mm-hmm. Uh, third, I would then, um, at that point, bring in a pregnancy care resource center or bring in the local church. Um, fifth, I would introduce options of um, adoption. So I, I, I think we're, we're trying to uh, work back from the worst case scenario to find less bad situations. Yeah, mm. yeah. Owen, oh, quick answer for us. Mm. Uh, what about legislation that gets the pro-life football further down the field but doesn't get it all the way to the end of the fo- football field. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't remove b- abortion altogether, but it, it at least takes a step in the right direction. Is that good or bad? Yeah, we have seen states pass record amounts of pro-life legislation in the last 10, 20 years. Uh, it's a stat you can find online. Hundreds of laws have been passed in all sorts of American states. We often think of government you know, in terms of federalism, what the federal government does, Roe v. Wade, and that's hugely important, right? But state government matters a great deal too, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. And so there's this massively heartening trend in America of good citizens getting elected 
to legislatures and then passing, sponsoring bills and passing those bills, seeing them passed, and those bills chipping away at the culture of death. So if you can, if you're in the New Mexico state legislature and you can ban abortions past 20 weeks, for example, or or something like this, okay, do it. Just because you may not be able to fully pass the whole kit and caboodle that we would desire does not mean that that work is in vain. It is very much in vain. And to, to cite one quick historical precedent, that is very much how slavery topples in the British Empire in the uh, 18th and 19th centuries. You can read all about this with William Wilberforce. It's chipped away at over decades, but all of those chips matter. Okay, good. All right, let's move on to gender, and we'll have to stick with Owen here again. Owen, you talked about Titus 2 teaching us, teaching women, the, the ladies, to be keepers of home. So do you think women can work outside the home in any capacity? Yes, I I do think they can. Um, And I think season of life matters so much. So I think what Paul has in mind, as best I can see in Titus 2.5, in calling women to be a worker at home, an an oikonergos, a new Greek term that he contributes, is that if they have children, he wants them to love those children and to raise them as best she can. You see this corroborated in another Pauline text, 1 Timothy 5.14, where he talks about widows, and he does not call widows to enter the workplace, interestingly. He says that they're to marry, uh, bear children, and raise those children, and uh, that's his call to women. We know from Proverbs 31, if we're putting together a theology of this issue, that women can certainly contribute in all sorts of ways. Uh, My wife, for example, even with somewhat young children, might teach part-time piano lessons on the side in coming years. She's a a wonderful piano player, and she might do that. But her primary vocation, I think, defined by Titus 2.5 is to, to be all in with those kids. One quick further comment. I would push back against a mentality based off of Titus 2.5 that would, that would put the onus on us and say, well, how much work can a woman do? I would say, how much can a woman give to her children? This is an incredible blessing. This isn't a burden. This is an incredible blessing that a woman would be freed up to love her children, nurture them, raise them daily, and not have them raised by somebody else, by a daycare, by other folks who are not a a part of the family. Um, This is a blessing to be freed up to do this, and I think that's the biblical mind on this issue. All right, related question. We didn't prepare for this one at all. Uh, And we may have disagreement among you three, but you can answer this quickly. Um, We we could have a woman president uh, in the near future. Forget that specific woman. (laughs) forget her policies in general in theory can a woman be president of the United States and let's say she's uh, she doesn't have young kids they're out of the house yes Justin Uh, I think it's less than ideal but I think that uh, there are situations in which it would be um, given the two options, say a strong pro-life woman versus somebody who was pro-choice uh, as a candidate, I, I think Christians in good conscience can vote to support someone. I think I do think it ends up creating an awkward situation where um, a woman is the commander-in-chief uh, directing in a forceful, authoritative way generals. I, I also think as we move outside the spheres of family, 
and church that the specifics in terms of biblical witness are just less detailed and clear. So it seems like there must be some latitude, but it goes back to creational realities. So it's not all relative. But as we move out from where God has spoken most specifically, I want to be less forceful in where I draw those lines. I, I, Recognizing there's differences. What does the president of Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood say? <laughs> the official theological position. No, uh, I, there, there actually is a spectrum of opinion among complementarians, so let that be said. I am where Justin is. He articulated that very well. I would say that, um, the, as you heard me say in my talk, that this uh, identity of helper which comes in Genesis 2 for a woman, is, is core to her identity. And so if I'm training daughters, and I have two of them, they are tiny and adorable. I love them. Uh, I, my wife and I are training them with that in mind. We're not training them in the way the culture trains them to, to think of themselves as uh, totally the same as boys, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's a, a line of thought that has primary application in marriage, but also is a kind of identity issue that I'm working on, on uh, gearing into them. That doesn't mean that they couldn't ever be president. It does mean that that would not be what I would see as ideal. Yeah. And so this is something that we can disagree on in our, in our specific churches. We shouldn't divide over sure. whether or not a woman can be president. I don't we disagree so. and we're still friends, I think. Right? We, we were. We were a okay. few minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Andrew, uh, what's ahead for us as a society with the gender confusion that's going on? Uh, what dominoes have fallen, are falling, and if you can try to predict the future, might fall? Oh, man. It's not good as far as where I might begin. Uh, I think we're, we're lurching farther and farther into the abyss on this um, in the sense that it's, um, it's almost nihilistic the further we go. Like it's, it's, it seems more and more and more pointless in terms of creating more and more identities. Uh, but on at least where my specific training is in is on the public policy component. Uh, I think it's an absolute flashpoint for the future of confessional institutions, um, specifically uh, Christian or Christian higher education institutions. Uh, I think I mentioned this either yesterday at some point this weekend. Um, to the extent that the Christian worldview continues to be unaccepted and is on a path towards conflict with federal policy and specifically federal education policy and Title IX and uh, the 1972 education amendments. Um, Those on the other side of the issue are going to try to get funding withheld from private Christian universities so that makes it impossible for them to rely on federal education and federal funding to receive loans for students to go there. So, uh, I mean, it's, it's going to tighten the belt around Christian institutions, and we're seeing that happen now. Um, the human rights campaign knows that it can't get institutions um, formally in trouble with the law right now, but what they've done is every single school that has asked for a waiver mm. and an exemption from this Title IX bureaucratic 
um, memorandum, uh, the Human Rights Campaign actually wrote a letter to the Department of Education saying, would you please advertise on, the, on, a, on a government website what states, what schools are getting these exemptions? Mm-hmm. So that's basically, like, we're, that sends a very clear signal. We know what you're doing, we're coming for you, and we want you out of business. Yeah. Did the government comply? Sorry? Did the department comply? Yeah, they did. Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, and how would you counsel someone with um, gender dysphoria? I would want to have an extensive process where I attempt to peel back why they're drawn toward this behavior, this aberrant behavior, what in them uh, feels like there is a disconnect between their body and their gender identity. Is there abuse in their past that pops up commonly in testimonies of people who experience this? Uh, or, or is this something that has just generated from within? There's not a definable historical moment in their life where this occurred, but this has always been part of their framework. The, the, ultimately, I want to help folks see that gender dysphoria is not fundamentally, fundamentally a psychological problem. It's a moral problem. It stems from the fall. It's an outworking of fallenness. Uh, that's not to say that every person... Uh, intentionally chooses to have it. But it is to say, this is an aspect of fallenness. This proceeds because of Adam's sin. God's word, I'm I'm wanting to say in counseling, is clear. Deuteronomy 22.5 calls cross-dressing an abomination. That's at least important for us to note. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11 makes very clear that we're not to dress like the opposite sex. We're not to, we're, we're just, we're supposed to distinguish ourselves as Christians. Yeah. The and word of feminine is there, right? The word of feminine is there, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And so I'm wanting to help them see that and I'm wanting them to see that this is a moral issue such that even if they're not aware of why they would want to clothe themselves or act like the opposite sex, um, they are acting immorally in owning this choice. And I want to help them uh, overcome this struggle in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what the gospel is sufficient for. If I, if I treat this issue only in psychological terms, I guess therapy is their solution. Well, there, there's going to need to be an extensive process here, but the gospel is the solution to gender dysphoria, just like it's the solution to every sin and every problem that ails us mm-hmm. at some level. And you made a great point that we shouldn't be surprised, right? We live in a fallen world. We shouldn't be surprised that sexuality is broken identity is broken. Absolutely. Yeah. Sometimes the body's broken. Exactly. So what about hermaphrodites, those for whom um, they have unclear genitalia? Uh, That is an extremely rare condition. I want to say that first, it occurs in something like 0.0005% of people. So it's, it's not this kind of major condition like we sometimes might think it is based on public discourse. Um, it is an outworking of the fall, actually. We want to make very clear that that is not something that people are choosing. This is effectively equivalent to a bodily condition that somebody inherits. And what we're trying to do when somebody has this kind of condition is help them push toward a a given sex and own a given identity as best they can. Mm -hmm. Uh, Andrew, how about, we'll go to you for this. What about those who have had a sex change? Suppose someone had a sex change, then came to Christ, mm-hmm. repented, embraced the gospel. Um, what do you tell them to do now? Great question. And I think that there's a range of legitimate options that Christians could propose 
Uh, my personal conviction would be that as that person, I, I would request that as that person um, grows in their knowledge of Christ, as they continue to understand the depths of repentance, that they would um, slowly uh, come to more embrace their innate given physical sex, and that over a span of time, which could be for the rest of the person's life it could take, that they're working on a path towards embracing their God-given physical sex. Okay. I would just say uh, if anybody's interested in kind of going deeper on this, Dr. Moore mm-hmm. uh, at his website, russellmoore.com, I think. Yeah, it's, yeah. John or Joan, you could probably Google search, uh, did a very extensive answer to this question. Just practically in the church, how do you uh, think about membership and how do you think about what what terminology to use and do you counsel them to reverse uh, their sex change? Very nitty-gritty, practical outworking of, of what it looks like in the context of a local church beyond just kind of theoretical discussion. It, it would be a wonderful essay to read. Our elders read it together and we're hmm. helped by it. And, and on that note, actually, that post was a final exam that Dr. Moore gave his ethics class at Southern Seminary in 2009 when I was actually in it. I had that exam. What and was your grade? <laughs> every, everyone in the class got the script. And it was a take-home exam. To, you could spend as much time as you wanted over because there was not one single answer. But everyone just thought like, this isn't real. Yeah. This isn't going to happen. Right. And we just kind of scoffed at it. And I guess seven years later, you can't scoff at those types of things. Yeah. Uh, Owen, you gave a great talk on manhood and womanhood in male leadership. Uh, how specifically can a man begin to lead his family spiritually? What would you recommend for a man who says, you got me, I, I haven't been doing it, I need to do it. Tell me what's next. I would say the first thing is simply to open up the word with your wife and with your family and to begin reading the word together as a family, begin basically instructing your family in biblical teaching and pray with your family and and seek to do this several times a week. I think when you start to do that as a man, as a husband and father, you have begun formal spiritual leadership of your family. That's the way to start. You don't need an MDiv. You don't need a PhD. It's nothing fancy. You simply open that word, teach it as best you know how based on your study of scripture and what you're picking up from church, pray with your family. And, and start from there. And begin to assess their heart, right? Absolutely. Ask questions that draw them out. Um, I think that's important as well. If anybody's looking for a little book, Don Whitney has a new book out with Crossway on family worship. It's not very long, and, it, and it's basically pray, read, sing. doesn't need to be like an hour-long sermon that you prepare for your, you know, right. two toddlers or something like that. But just <laughs> um, right. very short, practical, and... And, and I think the, the threshold to get going, as Owen said, is so, it's so low. Just do something. So uh, we, we pray nightly with both of our daughters. We have a little, it's like a, I guess you would call it a catechism, that we do one question before dinner. Uh, and we do Bible teaching on conversations throughout the day. But just start something and build from that. That's great. That's great. Well, we've got more questions here, we, some we didn't get to, some I think we'll probably try to answer on our church blog. Um, 
This has been a full weekend, a helpful weekend, I hope and pray. Uh, let's thank these guys for their hard work and for their time with us.